Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Edward Schumacher Matos is the ombudsman for NPR, dealing with issues of ethics, fairness, and accuracy, media and society, and language. He's joining me today to talk about some of the issues he's addressing recently, the patriotism of uh, NPR and its sponsor Al Jazeera, questions of bias and NPR coverage of the Israeli-Palestinian divide, and whether NPR should use the term Obamacare. And he also talks about immigration, fragmentation of the media, future of newspapers, the goals of NPR News, and relationships between NPR and its member stations. Edward Schumacher Matos spent more than three decades as a reporter and editor in the United States and abroad for some of the nation's most prestigious news outlets. He also founded his own newspapers. And immediately prior to joining NPR in June of 2011, Schumacher Matos wrote a syndicated weekly column for the Washington Post and was ombudsman for the Miami Herald. By the way, his column can be found at npr.org. Just look for the ombudsman section. Uh, Edward Schumacher Matos was in Utah recently visiting NPR member stations, including Utah Public Radio. He also gave a talk on immigration to students at Weber State University. Though this conversation was recorded last week, we'd still love to have your comments at upraxis at gmail.com or on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So I guess you uh, you do this, you go around and visit stations? I do, actually, and uh, it's it's one of the most pleasurable parts of my job. Let me just start with uh, the question. I think some people know what an ombudsman is, what's, but some people won't. Ah, well, I uh, um, one way of describing the ombudsman is that, is that uh, he or she is the uh, listener's representative. Um, when uh, people have complaints about something NPR does, um, uh, it, it comes to... To me, and if I looks like it's something worth pursuing, I do, and I sort of do an, an internal investigation. I talk to the reporters, I talk to the editors, um, and um, try to arrive at some kind of a conclusion or judgment about uh, if NPR did something wrong or not. Oftentimes, it's a, a Solomonic thing where you're parsing it both ways, depending on the issue. Sometimes they're just judgment calls that can be seen in different ways. There's no really right or wrong on the thing, but it's good that to understand how it could be seen, something could be seen in a different way. Uh, sometimes I think NPR is right and the person complaining is wrong, and then sometimes NPR is indeed wrong. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is to um, hold NPR accountable, number one, and number two, to build trust with the audience, to let people know that NPR cares enough to listen and do something about it. So your power, as it were, is is, I guess, publicizing the you know talking about it, getting yes. getting the discussion going. Yes, uh, I have total independence within NPR by contract. Nobody can tell me what to do or say. Um, I report to the, to the CEO, but only to the extent that he signs my uh, expense account. That's mm -hmm. about it. Okay. Um, um, but yes, it's it's the 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 power of of publicizing. Um, you know, my findings with all the, the, the backup for it. Mm. Uh, I cannot tell someone inside NPR to do this or do that. And so this is the kinds of things you look into are driven mostly by listeners, is it? Listeners, but also it can come from advocacy groups. It can come from political leaders. It can come from corporations. It can come from anybody who, who feels they have a stake in a story or just an interest in it. Mm. And what, what kinds of things are normally on the minds of listeners? You know, it, it really has a very, very broad range. I mean, you know, we oftentimes think it's it's all going to be political. It's going to be, you know, you're biased this way or you're biased that way. But sometimes it's that, you know, that uh, um, uh, 
it's something factual, something that could be said differently. Um, oftentimes, you know, represent somebody's political point of view. They just don't like hearing mm. <laughs> something they don't agree with, mm. you know. But uh, it, it could be a word choice. It could be many different things. Do you get, I, I guess this is coming mostly from NPR listeners, but I don't know if you have responded recently to the, uh, the that old charge that NPR is too liberal. You know, I get more complaints from the right. I mean, I'm sorry, from the left than I do from the right. Hmm. Now, people on the right say, oh, that's because nobody on the right's listening, but that's not true if you look at the audience numbers. Um, I don't think NPR tilts right or left. I think that NPR makes a very conscious effort to try to to be independent and to, to uh, arrive at at very fair uh, uh, conclusions in their reporting. Uh, it is, instead of being right and left, it does represent, um, like its audience, um, uh, you know, an educated, informed point of view uh, with interests that people have, people who are interested in government and public affairs uh, interested in the world around them. Um, uh, those are the sorts of interests that are reflected on NPR. Uh, I like to sometimes think that it's it's almost like it's a, a a suburban American interest and people who are commuting in their cars and they're commuting to the work and for the most part they're very educated people, um, uh, professionals, male and female. Um, pretty good diversity in terms of of uh, of race and ethnicity backgrounds. Uh, could be better on that. Uh, uh, NPR tries to make a very, very strong effort to to not just be diverse, but to sound like America. Um, I did a big uh, investigation on on whether or not there's a regional bias inside NPR, mm-hmm. and that that would be something of interest out here in Utah, mm-hmm. saying that that all the 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 coverage uh, really is about the two coasts and all the people who are speaking on the radio from the two coasts, uh, and that the American heartland's being ignored. Um, some truth to that, uh, but when you try and, and look at, if you do it in population terms, the, the dispersal of stories and voices is not too different from the per capita um, dispersal of, of uh, the population across America. Could it be better? Yes, it could be better, but it's, it is, compared to other news media, probably the best. Hmm. That was an interesting report. I was looking at that. Um, and you'd have, I'm looking at the report now, the, the map, and a very light color means uh, fewer stories, dark color means more stories, mm-hmm. and predictably, um, you know, New York, California, yeah. uh, Virginia, I guess, uh, have dark colors. Utah's is not the lightest color, it's the, the second up. I guess we kind of came in per capita somewhere, you know, pretty, pretty decent, you know, not too bad. Yes. Um, you write in your article that Texas, you could argue, got short shrift. Yes. You know, because Texas is a major state. I mean, it's really large. And I, I lived in San Antonio for three years uh, uh, before uh, moving to Boston and then to Washington. But um, and uh, uh, but yes, in terms of the number of stories uh, about. About or from Texas or quoting Texans compared to the size of Texas, both not just in you know square miles, but really in population, uh, Texas comes up uh, much shorter than anybody mm-hmm. else. You also point out that uh, you know you'd have a bias toward uh, bureaus, so-called. Yes. You point out some bureaus are are reporters, I guess, extra room or something. You know, it's yes, that makes a big difference where where bureaus are located. Yeah. Utah, there's a bureau here. 
Um, and the, the correspondent here actually is the rural affairs correspondent for right. all of America. Yeah, Howard Burkus. Exactly. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so he does a very good job, um, you know, covering rural America. But he's doing it from here. And so you know, Utah is going to benefit some uh, just by his presence here, mm-hmm. of course. I was wondering, you've been ombudsman for the Miami Herald, right? Is it the I, paper? Yes, I did the, the ombudsman job with Miami Herald before coming here. Uh, I was curious about the, there'd be some um, similarities, I would imagine, between the two audiences, but, but maybe some differences. No, they're big differences, Are I'd there? say. Okay. Big differences. Um, uh, the, this is not to denigrate the Miami Herald audience, because I, I, I love that audience, and it was great working with them. They're terrifically involved, and they, they, they care about... Um, the stories about South Florida and, and other and other issues, uh, but it's very much a South Florida type of phenomenon. Uh, the NPR audience is more national, more international. Uh, and the NPR audience is extraordinarily uh, educated and informed. Um, you know, you have the your you have an audience that knows as much, oftentimes, as as the people being interviewed um, uh, on any given subject, and that's a real pleasure to work with an audience yeah. like that. I think anyone who's worked for public radio, uh, you you know you're going to get your grammar corrected. <laughs> you, you know you're going to get your pronunciation corrected. You know the audience is very educated. That's right. That's which is, right. Which is a is a pleasure to, uh, to to be communicating to. No, it it is. That yeah. means you can deal with sophisticated issues in a sophisticated way. Yeah. I mean that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that you you know we should be boring. Not at all. Yeah. But. Um, uh, it is it is indeed a pleasure to work with this audience. And that's that's though what you see in the popular media. If NPR gets parodied, extremely low key to the point of you know <laughs> uh, boredom. You yes, know. I wouldn't. Yes, I know we do get parodied a lot, but uh, boredom it's not. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but is there an NPR style? Uh, yes, there is in public media. It's, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps we should break out of that just a little bit more. Maybe maybe we it, it isn't good if we all sound alike, of yeah. course. But there's a lot of a lot yeah. of variability too. And you have kind of the new style, you know, the, the Ira Glass, the Jad Abumrad, you know, kind of the <laughs> kind of the new conversational style. It's a new style that, yeah, okay. that you've seen. But you know what? What none of I don't think any of us want inside public media and in the audience is the shouting. You know, is the uh, um, uninformed opinions, is the lack of of, of gentility, of, of consideration for other people. Um, and I'm glad we don't go there. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about, and, and if you go to NPR Ombudsman, there's a subsection of the NPR site. And it's kind of interesting to see you, you have it, uh, I don't know if you, the, your, your uh, web manager has it split out into various uh, Areas, mm-hmm. and I was interested in in the one on language. Yes, and the the one you're dealing with most recently is Obamacare. Yes, <laughs> I wonder if you could uh, give us that and encapsulate the the argument there, and 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 what the beef of some listeners is. Well, the 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 issue is whether or not the word Obamacare is derogatory or not. And in the beginning, of course, I I think it was, and Republicans uh, used it as a way to to put down uh, the Health Reform Act. Um. Uh. Over time, the Democrats and the president himself began embracing the term, you know, trying to make it their own, uh, because it is such a shorthand way of referring to the Health Reform Act, uh, and it's a much easier way, and headline writers like it, uh, and we began finding that so many people began using the term, whether or not they agreed with the law or not, so the Democrats began um, adopting the word. Uh, So... The issue on so much language is 
what does it mean at that point in time in the society? Uh, and it and that changes. I mean, it's a it's a there's a, a a scholar at Harvard that says you know words ride an escalator, and they, it means one thing at the bottom, and by the time it gets to the top, it means something totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard to decide. It's not a science of saying, okay, where are we on that escalator? Is this word derogatory still or not? Um, that's just a pure judgment call. And when I first wrote about Obamacare, I actually was for the Miami Herald, and I said it was. I was critical of, uh, of the Herald for using it in a headline. Uh, by the time I came to write this NPR column, I said, no, I think it's become much more widely accepted. Um, and that, you know, you can use the terms interchangeably and, and it's probably okay. After that, which is curious, now in the last couple of weeks, last few weeks, um, the president in his, last, in his last speech stopped using Obamacare. Again. Oh, interesting. And, uh, and, and so are signaling that they don't want to use that, it seemed. And so I got a bunch of, of, of mail on that again. And the uh, standards editor inside NPR put out a, a uh, directive to the newsroom saying, well, maybe we should pull back a little bit on the use of Obamacare, not to outlaw its usage, but not to use it too much uh, for fear that it, it may be kind of, again, being seen at least by um, – a large group of Democrats is derogatory. Everybody's going to have their own opinion on this. I think I think the phrase is here to stay. I don't think it's going to go away. Um, and uh, you probably are better embracing it if you believe in it. Uh, and if you don't believe in the Health Reform Act, they're going to keep saying yeah. it. <laughs> and there are, uh, you know, people uh, outside of journalism may not know this, but it, 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 journalists have endless debates about this. And they they it, they really do discuss it. Their style guides. Yes. Um. W- one. Uh, you know, one issue that I was discussing with a friend uh, just today was the the changing terminology with regard to abortion. Yes. And there have been, I'm sure there are heated debates Ooh, right heated. now with inside newsrooms on, on how to term it, you know, pro-life, pro-choice. Exactly. Yes. Just another example. Exactly. Just words take on different meanings over time. Uh, and it's, it's impossible uh, to measure just what a, a word means at any given point in time. We just have to use our best judgment. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Utah Public Radio and Access Utah. And my conversation from last week with Edward Schumacher Matos, who is NPR's ombudsman. He was in Utah visiting NPR member stations, including UPR, and he gave a talk on immigration to students of Weber State University. More with Edward Schumacher Matos following a break. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health is coming to Utah. Dr. Pastor will give a free presentation titled Three Simple Steps to Ultimate Health on Friday, October 18th at Moab Regional Hospital. His address will be followed by a reception. Space is limited, so go to upr.org for registration information. Zorba Pastor will headline other events in Moab and Logan. You can find out more about those at upr.org. And Zorba Pastor's visit in Moab is sponsored by USU Moab and Moab Regional Hospital. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2 with a changing menu of specialty salads, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits, and lunch sandwiches. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, my guest for the hour today is Edward Schumacher Matos. He, uh, 
served for three decades as a reporter and editor in the United States and abroad for some of the nation's most prestigious news outlets. He founded his own newspapers. And immediately prior to joining NPR in June of 2011, Edward Schumacher Matos wrote a syndicated weekly column for the Washington Post. He was ombudsman for the Miami Herald. By the way, his column can be found at NPR.org. Just look for ombudsman. And uh, coming up, we'll be talking about immigration, fragmentation of the media, future of newspapers, the goals of NPR News. You're welcome to join this conversation with your questions or comments uh, at uh, upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, or you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. We'd love to have your comments. Edward Schumacher Matos was in Utah recently visiting uh, stations, gave a talk to Weber State University. Another article you wrote, this is on your blog. Uh, by the way, I'm talking with Edward uh, Schumacher Matos. He is NPR's ombudsman and uh, visiting uh, UPR. Um, the the appellation, I guess, the, the description of uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, a senator yes. from New York who has been described as hot, perky, girly. Yes, yes. And, of course, this causes heartburn because would you describe, um, you know, Chuck Schumer as hot or, <laughs> you know, perky, for example? Chuck Schumer might want to be described maybe, as hot. Maybe I. he would. <laughs> um, um, Yes, that was a, that was a particularly good issue because the reporter who did that was in fact a, a female reporter, um, and uh, and she was a reporter. Um, I knew her when she worked for W, uh, NYC in New York and did uh, covered uh, cops. So this is a you know a tough street reporter too, um, um, and. It, she did all these interviews with many people who were Gillibrand's friends and supporters who used this kind of language to describe the senator. And so she put the question to the senator, and the senator kind of laughed about it and said these, these things. Uh, um, uh, critics of using that language will say, well, what's the senator going to say? You know, when you get, you know, you don't want to look small. You don't want to, you know, you, you just go with the punches sometimes. Um, so I put, put the... Uh, question out to the audience. The, I did two columns on this, and the first I sort of put the question out to the audience and said, "Okay, well, what do we say um, about you know the physical attributes of of a of a woman when in the society now we're we're talking physically we're talking much more about the physical attributes of a man of men politicians of of." Uh, um, you know, the governor of New Jersey. I mean, it's hardly a story. He's not written about the governor without talking about, you know, his size. And uh, and uh, uh, and it goes on and on and on if you look at so many other people. And, you know, they now talk about men being hunks and, you know, what they look with their shirts off and all this type of a thing. So Obama himself, when he went, uh, 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 you know, on the beach in Hawaii with his shirt off, and, you know, this was, you know, front page everywhere, and, you know, you know no mama, the sex object, and everything like that stories. So, um, um, what do we, you know, what do we do? Are times changing? Should we be looking at things differently and so forth? And I just wanted to put it out there and see what the debate was. Mm -hmm. This is interesting. This is a very interesting part of your job, I'm sure. You, you sort of take the pulse very carefully of, of the audience, right? Because this is a lot of this is driven by the audience. And yes. That may change from one, as you mentioned, right. with the term Obamacare that might change well, a couple it, weeks it, to, it, to it, next. It, you know, in this one, I came back and did a second column. I said, no, yeah. let, let me be clear. In fact, I don't think you should use that kind of a language mm -hmm. uh, for lots of different reasons, uh, uh, not, not, not the least of which I think is derogatory towards a woman. You know, would you say it in the exact same way, in the exact same circumstances as a man, right. as a way to measure it? Right. And I had a lot of back and forth with, uh, with this on 
on uh, feminist groups, and I think we all we all agreed. Yeah. Uh, one of the other sections on the on the website NPR Ombudsman. It's npr.org slash or blogs uh, slash blog slash ombudsman. Uh, fairness and accuracy, and this this is really where the rubber meets the road in, in uh, journalism, right? Yeah. Um, apparently, um, let's see, pull this up. John Felton, former foreign editor, he does a quarterly, I always know this, yes. he does a quarterly independent review of NPR's Israeli-Palestinian coverage. And I suppose you have a quarterly review of this because it is so loaded. Exactly. Um, uh, I've heard the term National Palestinian Radio before, uh, you know, yes. that's uh, and I guess no matter where you are and, you know, it's it's very uh, I guess the, the right word is loaded. It's very heated. It totally is. Uh, and, and of course, if you if you're pro-Palestine or you're, you're an advocate for, for, for the Arab side, you see NPR as being in the pocket of, of, of you know, Jewish groups. And so uh, this was uh, this is an issue that's just so loaded that we. We look at it every every quarter, and, and John does a does a terrific job of of uh, of following all the stories and detailing exactly how NPR played each story, uh, and looking to see where there may have been some flaws. Hmm. What what's the latest results? What did what did he think? I think he thinks NPR does a good job overall. Hmm. He just finds um, there's a new correspondent out there. She's made a couple of couple of mistakes, which was the normal thing of such a complex issue. And you show up at the, you know, you're, 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 you're covering it and you've just started, started covering it. Um, uh, but nothing that, that that's reflects any kind of a motive of trying to slant a story one way or the other. Mm-hmm. On an issue like this, are there, I know there are always style guides. Mm-hmm. Are there any instructions to a, a reporter going into this issue? You know, do we... Uh, I'm, I guess they have uh, would have conversations with their editor. Yes. About this, and you'd want to, you know, you'd want to run it right down the middle, but that's very hard to do. Thread that needle, right? In terms of being perceived as fair and accurate. Right. Yes, there are style guides, um, but so many issues don't lend themselves to a style guide. They're they're judgment calls um, that depend on the circumstance and the situation. Um, and so NPR's ethics code, which came out about a year, year and a half ago, uh, is based much more on principles instead of rules. And I agree with that totally. Mm. You wrote a uh, column recently about uh, a new sponsor, Al Jazeera America. Yes. And apparently there's been some heartburn among some listeners. Yes. That, that Al Jazeera America is, you know, this program sponsored by this sponsor. Yes. And so this is... a. Um, um, complaints that uh, you know if Al Jazeera America is a sponsor, when whenever NPR does a story, in this case, it did some stories about Al Jazeera America. It's it's launch in the United States as as a media story. Um, should you say that that Al Jazeera is a sponsor? Number one and number two, should you accept them as a sponsor? Period. Um, and for many listeners, it was remembering the early days of the Iraq War when Al Jazeera. Um, aired what turned out to be a fraudulent uh, video of a beheading of a supposed American. It was a totally staged and was not a beheading of an American. Uh, and the case of the, the American contract workers, remember, who were hung from a bridge, and Al Jazeera showed that footage, too. And so for some uh, listeners, those were painful moments to remember, and, and they blame Al Jazeera for that. Um, and they kind of see it as being anti-American, and so 
why um, are we NPR accepting Al Jazeera America as a sponsor? So this came to me, and and as, and I looked very closely at it, and I've looked at Al Jazeera America as well. Um, and my conclusion was one: the sponsorship is very transparent. We see it. Uh, you see it because you hear it. You hear the sponsorship uh, ads, and the, and really sponsorships are no different, uh, uh, effectively, right, from advertising and commercial media. Um, um, we know who the advertisers are. If you're, if you're going to do some stories about, say, Al Jazeera's campaign, you'd have to say that, that they did it in, in, in NPR. But I felt that it was transparent enough that we know enough about Al Jazeera America and its relationship to NPR that it wasn't necessary to repeat every time you mention Al Jazeera in a story that Al Jazeera is a sponsor of NPR. We get the same issue on fracking and uh, on so many other stories that have anything to do with anybody that's a, that's a, a, um, a sponsor of NPR. Um, secondly, was looking at Al Jazeera itself. Should NPR have accepted Al Jazeera? That's a management issue more than anything else. But I looked at it as a, as a free press, free expression issue. Uh, and, uh, and my conclusion was that Al Jazeera is, is, is not just legitimate. Uh, it's really good. It's a valuable voice. We should want to hear from Al Jazeera America in the United States. We should welcome them here. Um, 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 you know, did they have a few tasteless lapses? You can argue that. Um, some people defend running that kind of video. People here in this kind of the United States defend it. They're saying, why are we hiding the, the ugliness of war? We should show it. So maybe we might not go to war as much or, or we will hate our enemy more for whatever reason. But a lot of people argue these, are, these issues both ways. And so that, that doesn't reflect... Uh, it wasn't an anti-American issue for, for them. It was a it was a taste standards issue, which you can do in lots of different ways. Um, so, and from a free expression point of view, um, we really have to stand up to our principles and allow Al Jazeera America to the United States. Mm. Are there? I, I imagine there would be sponsors who would not be accepted, but uh, I, I guess that's true. And uh, and what uh, were. What's the sliding scale? How do you make that decision? That's a you know that's a good question. It's a judgment call. I think when you're talking about somebody that's a, a fraudulent or it's it's it, or it's a hate organization, then clearly you don't accept that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was before your time a couple of years ago. But I, you know, there was the, the big case of the, the James O'Keefe, uh, you know, tapes. Of course, he had a he was he was trying to expose NPR in his mind, uh, right? But I think the, this fake group that was was being presented to NPR was supposed to have been aligned with the Muslim Brotherhood, right? Um, and uh, you know that that would get you into it because we we've seen a lot of different sides of the Muslim Brotherhood in in recent years. I think at that time it was seen as maybe would have been beyond the pale at that that point. at that but time. Yes, that but then the United States worked with the Muslim Brotherhood and the Morsi government in Egypt, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. And now we're trying to sort of defend them a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. With the situation uh, um, where you know they're being persecuted by the military in Egypt, so yes, I'm talking with uh, Edward Schumacher Matos. He is NPR's ombudsman. Previous to that, he was uh, ombudsman at the Miami Herald. Uh, he's had a long career in uh, journalism. Reported, I think, from uh, Japan and South Korea and uh, uh, many areas. Um, and uh, you you ran you you started a chain of. Newspapers that yes, correct? I tried a, ch- a chain of Spanish language newspapers uh, in Texas. Um, this was after working for the Wall Street Journal, where I, I launched a Latin American edition for the journal, and ran it for nearly a decade. Um, um, 
it it uh, it uh, I it grew out of out of trying to get Dow Jones to buy a newspaper in Mexico and publish a full Mexican edition of the journal. Um, when the journal um, decided not to make that to do that as a business decision, I then decided to be an entrepreneur on my own and go. So. <laughs> <laughs> Originally, it was going to be a cross border. A project with a Mexican partner. The Mexican side fell through, and I went ahead with the U.S. Uh, uh, Hispanic side. Um, it was a beautiful project. Uh, we had wonderful readership. We were very well accepted in Texas. We won zillions of prizes and so forth. Um, but we launched it right when the advertising uh, started heading south uh, for print in the United States. And it hasn't stopped going down. And with the huge cash burn that we had, uh, finally, after f- three or four years, we had to cut them back to weeklies, and I sold out. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. What uh, I think the, those who love newspapers are concerned about. Where, yeah. where are newspapers headed? Because a you know, big portion of their advertising revenue is dried up, and it's still not a solid source of revenue on the horizon. Nobody, nobody sees what the answer is yet. Hmm. I've, I've done this dance with my own newspaper I finally gave up the the uh, paper version of it because I just wasn't reading it. I was going online. <laughs> I did go and buy the their digital, you know, uh, version of the paper mm-hmm. because I wanted to support them. Yes. You know, it's kind of like giving my contribution to NPR. Yes. But I don't know, you know, I could just go and get it for free. Well, you know, what we're finding across the country is that NPR is stepping into the breach. Um, you know, the local member stations are stepping into the breach of where uh, local newspapers are pulling back and providing more and more local news. Yeah, so there's an opening for for radio. Yes, for radio, and then and, 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 and public radio doing that kind of online coverage too. Yeah. Mean, you know, the online side of NPR is going like mad. What uh, what what's the goal then of NPR? I think, and, and it seems like it's lofty ambitions. They, they want to become the source for your news programming. Yes, uh, and to be uh, the a national source everywhere. I mean, you know, it's no mistake that the. Um, um, Executive Vice President of NPR and the Chief Content Officer, Kinsey Wilson, actually comes from the digital side, not from the radio side. Um, uh, and he's been building uh, partnerships with member stations across the country mm-hmm. to try and uh, and forge a real powerful news alliance uh, for covering the news locally and nationally for, for, for listeners and readers. Um, uh, it, it, you know, it's all still a work in progress. Exactly what's going to be the best way to do that, we'll find out. Uh, but it's a, it's at least a fascinating time, and and it and I hope what it does do is is provide um, a service to to listeners in still being able to bring not just national international news but local news that that in the end in such a strong federal system like the United States where the local market is is the most important market mm. um, that that we're able to. We, when I mean we, I mean you, the member stations with the support of NPR in Washington, are able to to, to fill that vacuum and, and, and that need. Yeah. Sometimes there are some tensions in that relationship, right? Yes. NPR I, and the member stations. Yes. Um, and a sort of transferring over to news. And you know, NPR, I think, is relying more and more. It seems like the trends will lead NPR to rely more and more on local reporters, member stations sending in reports. I think that would be a great idea. I mean, I've seen stories done by NPR national uh, correspondents where I think they made a mistake not uh, relying on the local reporters who know more about the local situation. Um, and the the 
you know, some stations have have a, a, a stronger tradition and a higher level of reporting quality. I mean, here we are in the station where the first two presidents of NPR actually mm-hmm. <laughs> actually come from here. Right. Um, you know, there's a real tradition of 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 news and particularly public uh, public uh, radio news. Um, but not all stations are at the same level. You know, you are here. Uh, but they're getting there so fast, and NPR itself is 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 invested in a big way in terms of training, and and uh, um, I, I just am, I'm amazed by the quality level across the country of local stations. Do you, as ombudsman, um, do you do you get involved in 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 some of those? You might call it a back and forth. You know, a, a member station is contributing something, and. Uh, you know, there's arguments over standards and that whole thing. I don't get uh, too directly involved. Uh, some stations complain to me about stories that they feel um, are wrong or that they've heard from their own listeners. Um, and so they then send the complaint on to me. I get a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do things like what I'm doing here right now, uh, sort of uh, reaching out, trying to to to. Solidify the contacts between you know headquarters in Washington and 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 here at the local level um, to show that everybody cares and that you know that that even the ombudsman is listening to what you have to say or what your listeners have to say. We're talking with Edward Schumacher Matos. He is NPR's ombudsman, and uh, he is in Logan visiting member station uh, Utah Public Radio. Um, he is also in Utah giving a talk. Um, on immigration, let's jump into that. You, uh, what, are, what, are, what are you going to be telling the the students? What? Well, what are some of the issues? You'll be... <laughs> I think I try to put. Uh, it, it's not my position to, not my place to take a position on on what immigration reform should be uh, in this country. Um, but but I do try to put it in some kind of a broad uh, context and analysis and uh, sort of dispel some of the myths um, with as much uh, fact as I can. Um, and everybody can then make their own decisions on what the what policy should be, um, but I think that the the great the great uh, migration wave that's come up from out of Mexico and Latin America is pretty much over. Um, this is not to say that we're not going to have undocumented immigrants coming across. That illegal immigration is dead. This is this is not to say that immigration is dead in this country at all, uh, but it is to say that uh, for the last few years. Um, the amount that the amount of the of, of uh, Ill- this illegal immigration has topped off, has gone way down, and now there's actually more people leaving than coming in. Um, um, the numbers are very close, but you know we're not going to see uh, returns uh, to the levels of illegal immigration that we've had in the last ten, twenty years, for lots of reasons. One in Enforcement works to some extent. There's a deterrent factor there. Two, the Mexican economy is doing very well. Demographics have changed in Latin America. They've changed in Mexico. Birth rates have come way down. You don't have the pressure from Mexico as the primary country to be to be concerned about. Um, you still have a lot of problems in Central America, but those are small countries. You know, not not one of them has more than 10 million people, most are less. Um, and then for the rest of the world, it's very minor. And because now you haven't talked about people who are coming on visas on airplanes and overstaying their visas, and that's much harder to do. Generally speaking, they're also much they're very educated uh, immigrants, and uh, and and um, you know they're folks that probably want to have anyway. This is not to say you don't want the 
people coming out from Mexico and, and Central America because that's not true either. They can, they have indeed contributed in a great way to the country. So, you know, the whole issue now is what do you do with that, you know, 11 million or so uh, million undocumented immigrants who are here, most of whom have been here for a long time. And that's a perplexing issue. It's a difficult issue. It's a, it's one that, you know, there, there are good arguments on all sides and we just have to work our way through it. So if if you're right, if the, if the wave of immigration has peaked, is that going to take um, some of the political pain out of uh, out of getting a solution? Or do you yes, think it's going to be? So. You think it's going to improve? If you debate? if you if you take a look at where all the uh, the great reaction to immigration is, it's mostly from states and from people that. Um, have seen a huge spike, uh, particularly in illegal immigration, uh, in recent years. So the first reaction came from California way back in the early 90s, because at that time, all the almost all of the illegal immigration, I mean, I did, I did it as a reporter myself, being smuggled over from, from Mexico as a first reporter to do that back in, you know, in the 80s, early 80s, late 70s. Um, and it was all going into California. And so there's a huge reaction in Californians. I mean, it's it's only natural there's going to be a reaction with all these sudden people showing up, uh, and they don't, you know, and they they weren't invited and they're not legal uh, in terms of you know having legal papers at that time. Um, if you look at California today, California now is leading the country in trying to absorb these undocumented immigrants, giving them a driver's license, doing all sorts of things to, to accept the fact that they're now part of the state of California. And where you still have the great reaction for places like, you know, the, uh, the Southeast, um, you, know, other, uh, you know, other parts where we've had much more, where the immigration shifted from California and went to these other parts of the country because that's where the jobs were. Um, and so there, you know, Suddenly having this great mass of immigrants show up and, you know, clog the schools and go into the hospitals and all the stories that you hear, um, uh, you know, causes a reaction. And it's a natural reaction among people. Um, but I think we're going, we'll begin to see a way of working out as, you know, as these people become your neighbors and they become the, the, the boyfriends and girlfriends of your children. And, and, you know, and then they become the people you work with, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, you know, we'll, I think we'll begin to work our way through how to resolve this situation. Um, clearly, the, you know, the country can't have open borders. I mean, I think that that's just totally unrealistic. Um, it would undermine the very country that we've built and that make that, that attracts people to come here. So, you know, there's a limit to, to what you can accept from immigration. On the other hand, you know, we have thrived as a nation of immigrants. And so... Um, it's finding that right balance, and there's no one answer to that. You just sort of work your way through it the best you can. Hmm. You had a, a recent piece on uh, sort of getting the language right on uh, on immigration policy. <laughs> it's titled "Getting the Bedfellows Im- Immigration Policy Right." Yeah, uh, this is an interesting case. But how you label organizations? Yes, yes. Um, um, this one had to do with. Uh, a group, the Center for uh, Immigration Studies, which is a, um, a group that is very much a restrictionist group. They want to restrict the number of, of not just I- illegal immigration, but legal immigration. They think the legal numbers are too high. They want to bring them down. Um, it's a legitimate point of view. And uh, and they do lots of studies. And I think some of their studies are good. 
um, but they were labeled a right-wing organization. And, and if you look at immigration, it's not a right-left issue. Um, it's never been a really a right-left issue. I mean, right now in the Congress, it seems to be a Democrat-Republican issue. But if you look at it real closely when you start breaking down the aspects of it, and particularly the closer you get to any kind of a comprehensive immigration reform or you see what happened in the Senate, you know, you see that the people who want to restrict immigration, um, generally speaking, are are people who are very concerned about the country. They're more nationalistic. They're more, you know, sort of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, of a kind of a sort of the center, you know, they're they're not really right or left. They're really just just uh, ordinary Americans with a great concern for patriotism in the country and this kind of a thing, um, um, as one group. And you look to see, and and um, and then you have the nativists, and you have the people who are racist, and you have all those kind of people who are really really have all the wrong reasons for being against immigration. Uh, and the people who are pro-immigration, it's a mix of the of the humanitarian religious groups uh, uh, with the business community. And so, you know, it's the, the humanitarian left and the business right uh, who, who, since the beginning of the republic, have always been pro-immigration. So it's it's just not right to, to, to call any one group right-left. It's really, you know, if you're restrictionist or not restrictionist on, on these issues. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're hearing my conversation from last week when Edward Schumacher Matos, NPR ombudsman, was in town. He was in uh, Utah visiting uh, member stations and uh, giving a talk on immigration to students at Weber State University. More with Edward Schumacher Matos following a break. Dr. Zorba Pastor from Zorba Pastor on Your Health is coming to Utah. And you're invited to his free presentation, Living a Long Sweet Life, at the Logan Regional Hospital on Thursday, October 17th. The presentation includes lunch, but space is limited, so register now at upr.org. Zorba Pastor will headline other events in Logan and Moab. You can find out more about those at upr.org. Zorba Pastor's visit to Logan is sponsored by Intermountain Logan Regional Hospital. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Edward Schumacher Matos is ombudsman for NPR. He deals with issues of ethics, fairness and accuracy, media and society, and language. We've been talking about some of those issues as well as other issues such as immigration. And he was in Utah last week visiting NPR member stations. He gave a talk on immigration also to students of Weber State University. Here's the final portion of my conversation with Edward Schumacher uh, Matos. I'm interested to get your, your take on what you might call the, the 50-50 uh, problem. That is, a lot of media outlets, I'm sure including NPR, want mm-hmm. to present side A and side B. Mm-hmm. And uh, some listeners, and I, I get this from, from listeners to uh, UPR, on climate change. And they tell me it's not side A, side B. They, right. this, the question in their minds is settled, absolutely settled. It's, you know, it's... If anything, it's ninety nine one, and and uh, we you know mm. we we shouldn't shouldn't have side A side B. It, right. We should reflect a uh, you know more toward what they right. see as the truth. I, I wonder how you handle that. Yeah, um, I go back to the new NPR ethics code. It does not <clears throat> call for balance. It calls for fairness mm. and independence. Um, there is such a thing as false equivalence. The climate change is a perfect example. Uh, uh, you, 
I don't think NPR should give equal weight to the people who say either climate change doesn't exist or even worse, that humans don't contribute to the problems we have with climate change. The science is just not there. And so we have to go with what facts that we have and the science that we have. We have to you know, make a judgment call on, okay, I hear all the arguments. This is what seems to be um, uh, the correct, this is where the facts are. These are where, all the, where everything comes down. It is so overwhelming on the side of, of the problems of climate change uh, and that the folks who are against climate change essentially are making religious arguments, belief arguments, um, some truth to what they say. Uh, but only some truth. And, you know, folks recognize that there's some truth. And it could be that some will, you know, be some discovery that say the science is all wrong. But so many scientists across so many countries from so many disciplines and so many backgrounds all coming to the same conclusion, this is not a conspiracy. And so we have no choice but to be fact-based and to go with where the facts lead us. And so you do not give equal play to the two, to the two sides. That would be unfair um, that would be a, a massive uh, 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 misjudgment on the part of NPR, any news media. Hmm. Do you think media uh, as a whole is going more toward this, away from balance and toward fairness? Um, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think that the um, the Iraq war underlined the flaw of balance um, when the media was not willing enough to um, to weigh what the evidence was um, before we went into Iraq. And I think most Americans today, and I overwhelmingly, and this is from right to left, um, you know, feel that, that, that it's, was, we met, that our reasoning for going in was wrong, uh, and the costs that we've paid for it uh, uh, have been very high uh, in terms of Americans who have died in that war, as well as in terms of treasure. Um, and this is not to say that there haven't been good things that have come out of the Iraq War. I'm not saying that at all. Um, so, uh, and I think at that point, we the media was cowed a little bit into this concept of, oh, we've got to be you know, the 50-50 thing, the balance thing, because there were so many complaints about the media being uh, too liberal that that everybody would begin to question ourselves. Well, maybe they're right, you know. Um, we do have to look at this and, and you know, are we too liberal? Um, are we too arrogant? And I think, yes, I think the media has been too arrogant. I think there, there, I think there have been some truth to some arguments in different times. I mean, parts of the media have been too liberal. I say parts of the media because there is no one such thing as the media mm -hmm. or one view monolithic news media. It doesn't exist at all. The mainstream news media, it's just not true. Um, uh, but you do see, however, ups, you know, flows, ebbs and flows of how the media cover different stories. I mean, sort of generally cover different stories. <clears throat> and you, you have seen um, uh, or you did see a tremendous arrogance uh, uh, grow in, in the news media that I think was wrong. It became too separate from its public. Oddly enough, I, it may have even been because of ethics. It began to say, you know, we, we, we can't 
be close to anybody. We have to keep everybody at arm's length. And, you know, we'll be judge and jury on everything. And everybody started saying, well, wait a minute, who elected you? Um, number one. And then number two, what with the advent of the Internet and, and everybody themselves becoming essentially their own reporter, um, you know, the media was still claiming that it represented uh, um, citizens and citizens, <laughs> citizens said, no, we're doing our own thing right here. Um, so, um, you know, there's been a huge revolution in what's going on with the news media. Um, and I think now we're seeing uh, the mainstream media come around to saying, look, you know, we have our limitations, uh, but we're just going to do we're going to recognize those limitations now and we're going to do the best we can um, to try to be fact based, uh, call them like we really see them, um, uh, not have this false equivalence, uh, but at the same time be open to uh, criticism and be open to other points of view. Now that last part I say, um, that's why we have an ombudsman at NPR. A lot of the news media is not as open as it should be to criticism. It's not. We all know it's not. Uh, reporters are the most sensitive people to criticism of, of anybody, in that, which I just, uh, you know, I, I have to deal with that, and I, yeah. and I abhor it, frankly. Um, but um, uh, uh, I, I do think it's it's imperative that we become closer to our audience. Mm. I wonder, um, I'm sure you've thought about the... Uh, the ongoing, what you might call, balkanization of the media. Mm-hmm. We, uh, you know, there have been some great things come with the online explosion. Mm-hmm. But uh, one thing I think that a lot of us de- decry is the fact that you can shield yourself from anything that you disagree with. Um, and I wonder if you you see that as a, as a trend. Yeah. I think it's a shame, and I, and I worry what it means for American democracy and American sense of national unity. Um, when we become so fragmented, uh, not just in what we believe, but also in what news media we consume, and fragmented that we begin just looking for the news media that agrees with our point of view. And it's, it, and that fragmentation grows out of changing business models where now it's very cheap to launch a cable channel to, to reflect some point of view, or even more, uh, it's so cheap to do a website uh, or have your own blog or whatever it may be. Um, you know, when when the nation is not reading off of, or at least more or less sharing the same group of facts, they may have different conclusions, but sharing the same group of facts, um, it it raises real concerns uh, um, um, that we may be just that balkanizing. And if you've been in, in situations in countries around the world where you see that kind of division, it's so ugly and it's so tragic and it's so hard to overcome. Uh, because really the differences become religious. They don't become differences, you know, based on facts. Mm. Um, uh, I, I, I hope we don't get there. I fear it. I fear it a lot. I think it's a, we're, we will have more and more news media identified with points of view because of the fragmentation you're talking about. I think that's inevitable. It doesn't mean the end of democracy. I mean, if you, the rest of the, Japan, Europe, all these countries have media that are identified with political parties or identified with some particular ideology or something, that's fine. You know, I mean, those are strong democracies. You know, we don't have to have the American model, uh, what's been the American model for the last hundred years. Um, but if it becomes so fragmented and so much based on half-truths, and self-righteousness, then I began to worry. Hmm. Final question. I'm, when, this happened before your time, and so, but it, 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 I'm sure it was traumatic uh, to the organization, the Juan Williams case. Yes. Um, I wonder what, what are the lessons there? Do you, do you, is NPR still talking about what 
what what they learned from that or is or did they not talk about it um you're right that was before my time mm-hmm. i think um 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 i think a lot of that was just a, a you know a management issue more than anything else it was mishandled and i think everybody recognizes it was mishandled all the way around um uh, I'm very sorry to see that. That's almost one reason why I accepted this job to be ombudsman NPR because I could see that uh, that at least there was a lot of a lot of attention. It was in the middle of the, of the political debate, and um, um, uh, uh, the quality of the organization was such that uh, it didn't need to shoot itself in the foot like that. Mm. Um, so, so go. I guess. The- that's the uh, no real, I guess, lasting systemic. Lessons no, I to be think heard, everybody's heard trying to just to be forward. more clear about the role of mm-hmm. uh, of reporters and you know limit limiting um, the number of commentators and what their roles are too and um, what people can do outside NPR. Uh, um, but you know there are still uh, a reporter Mara Eliasson uh, who who's who shows up regularly on Fox all the time. I mean, that, that's not a problem. Yeah. Um, um, uh, you know, Juan Williams does a lot of very good stuff that he represents, a, you know, a, a, clearly a very uh, legitimate and strong point of view and so forth. Yeah. Um, um, and he's a good voice to have. We'll leave it there. Um, out of time, um, NPR Ombudsman, um, Edward uh, Schumacher-Matos has been with us. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Edward Schumacher-Matos, ombudsman for NPR, was in Utah last week uh, visiting NPR member stations, including Utah Public Radio. He also gave a talk to students of Weber State University. And uh, we had this comment uh, come in uh, here to the later part of the hour. I wanted to get this in from Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. He says, I love public radio, huge fan and consumer. I also like NPR, which is a Washington-based organization. is one of many organizations which provide excellent programming to public radio stations such as UPR. What I don't like, this is the only thing about public radio universe that I don't like, is NPR News. NPR News is thoroughly infected with inside-the-beltway groupthink. It's not a source for objective news and independent analysis. Instead, its value is that it is a window on the vanities and vapidities of Washington political class and the myths and misinformation which is shared in the insular and disconnected Washington Beltway. Some NPR news reporters don't really function as journalists at all, but rather as mouthpieces for the government. Tom Jelton, Dina Temple-Raston are exemplars of this kind of so-called, quote, reporting, end quote. This is a very harsh criticism, but it's genuine. By no means does it apply only only to NPR news. Sadly, most of Washington corporate news media uh, media is similarly affected, but we all wish the NPR news would reach a higher standard. And uh, so, Steve, uh, though we're on tape, we'll pass this on to Edward Schumacher-Matos. Thanks, everyone, to, for listening. And for my producer, Bennett Purser, thanks for listening today.